Thank the Lord for Marshall leading us in this class. Hasn't it been a great class? He used to be my friend. I appreciate him very much until he gave me this chapter. And uh, now you need to pray for our relationship. All right, let's get going. I have a lot of uh, quotes this morning from the book. One of the reasons that's so is I can't say things better than Dr. Lutzer. So there's going to be a number of quotes. I'll read them in case it's a little difficult. I was hoping that we would get our new uh, projectors uh, by my class today, but we still have one that's working well, and hopefully you'll be able to see the quotes. Some of them are a little bit long, but not too long, uh, Lord willing. So let us ask God to honor our time together for, uh, for our benefit. It's okay. For our benefit and most of all for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. This is the day that you've made. And uh, what a beautiful uh, sunrise it was to see what a creative God you are and the colors that we see all around us. You're so great. Your glory is on display in your creation. And, and when we think about the fact that this is a fallen world under the curse and yet the glory and beauty of it, Wow, will we see something else someday. Your glory. The glory of the new heaven and new earth. We anticipate that by your grace and your grace alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. So give us attentive minds today. Aid us in always thinking biblically. Siphon everything through the hands of uh, a sovereign God and a biblical worldview. And we're not going to have that if we're not in the book. If we're not thinking biblically and learning how to discern all the, all the air from truth, all the air that is uh, propagated to us through all the means, media and so forth today. And yet we realize we're here for a purpose and we don't want to miss it. And we want to think biblically and respond boldly, humbly, for the Lord Jesus Christ. So on our time, thank you for these things and this opportunity we have in this hour and the next hour to come. We pray this in Christ's name and all of his people said. Okay, the focus of this chapter is, is twofold. Twofold. And it begins with, and a bulk of it is conveying to us, the merger of two ideologies. Listen carefully. It's the merger of two ideologies, and they are very powerful, and they are very influential in our country. And these ideologies are anti-American. And they're anti-American because both of them oppose what is our Western values rooted in a Judeo-Christian ethic. They are also um, opposed to the Western uh, Judeo-Christian ethic and opposed to our country uh, because they are opposed to a democratic form of government which promotes capitalism or free enterprise or 
personal ownership as opposed to, as we saw last week, as opposed to statism or a form of statism ultimately in what is called totalitarianism, state government ownership versus private. Now, these two ideologies, one of which uh, you were made aware of last week, so this is just a bit of review, but the two of these chapters really merge into one main idea. And the first ideology is what we call radical secularists or socialists. And that, that concept, that ideology is rooted in Marxism, as you can read up there. And I want now to move to a couple of quotes by Dr. Lutzer concerning this. We're going to get past the ideology stuff, think biblically, but stay with me because that's the focus of the chapter and awakening us to what's happening in our, in our context. What is socialism? This is from last week. In a nutshell, it is the supremacy of the state over the individual. Or if you want a one-word definition, it's statism. You remember that from last week. It's when the government takes ownership of the means of production and promises to redistribute wealth in what is claimed to be a fair-minded way. On the surface, this seems like an attractive solution to poverty and fiscal insecurity. Say, well, like uh, socialism, that kind of sounds like uh, kind of sounds like communism or whatever else. It's never worked. Yes, but those who espouse to it say it's never been worked right. And if we get to work it right, it'll finally be, finally be the true utopia. One more quote from from uh, last week. Oh, did I mess up already? Second one, page one eighty-seven. Yes, here we go. But there are reasons that socialism, even of the democratic variety, cannot keep its promises very long. Though well-intended, if followed through for a length of time, it will fail. Socialism builds on a ladder to a place that does not exist. It talks about distributing wealth, but it has no way of creating it. Government doesn't create wealth, but it sure does a great job of spending it. Amen? That is the problem. Um, one more here, I believe. <laughs> yes. The cultural Marxists believe the naive notion that people do evil only because they are oppressed remove that oppression, and they will, will be peaceful and accommodating. That sounds biblical, doesn't it? You better be shaking your head right now. Uh, oh, such a false idea. That's all regarding this particular first ideology with reference to radical socialism or secular mentality of, of thinking. Then we have the second ideology that we're on to today, and that's radical Islam, radical Islam that is rooted in Sharia law, um, which is focus of world domination by, by Islam. Now, he has a couple of statements to say about that, and this is now getting us 
in our chapter today. Now, again, these two ideologies merged together for a particular purpose that relates to anti-Western values, capitalism, Judeo-Christian ethic, okay? Radical Islamists and radical secularists are fighting side by side, brought together by a common enemy. To begin, I need to emphasize, please don't miss this, to begin, I need to emphasize that the majority of Muslims who live in America have come to accept Western values and have no interest in attacking America's religious history or economic system. They benefit from the West's freedom and opportunities, and they hope they will continue to do so. Most of us are acquainted with a westernized version of Islam that does not reflect the true nature of this religion. Now, um, I want to stop just for a moment here. Well, we're going to move to the response here a moment. Just one more, okay? One more. You're going to be patient with these quotes. Amen? Be patient with me? One more. Yet, yet, there are radical Islamists who have a burning passion to implement Sharia law in the U.S. and see their flag fly over the White House. These leaders are by no means the majority, but they have disproportionate control and influence. They have the ability to stir up others, oftentimes by deceptive means, and enlist them in their fight against America. All right, that's the merger of those two radical um, ideologies. Then we want to come to the focus, second half of the book, its focus on the response of the church. Now, before we get there, um, and I'm going to come back to this at the end, but there are things when we look at this type of a situation, when we examine these type of ideologies in the context of our country. There are three things that the Christian can never afford to forget. The first is when we think about what's happening in our country or in Ukraine or anywhere else in the world, we must never lose sight of the sovereignty of God. None of what happens anywhere in God's world catches God by surprise. And when I say sovereignty, I'm saying that God rules, not just the fact that he's aware of what's going on. God is not sitting in heaven and saying, man, I never thought it'd get to this. He works all things by the counsel of his own sovereign, infinite wise plan. If you're not sure about that, go back and read Isaiah 45, 46 in that particular section. Second thing we never want to lose focus of is that when we look at what's going on in the world around us and all of the chaos, we can easily forget that we live in a fallen world. And in our fallen world, characterized by chaos, the depravity of human heart reigns. And as Marshall has reminded us, take your Bible, Turn to 2 Timothy, 
About time we get to the Bible, amen? Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Sovereignty of God, the reality of human depravity in a fallen world under the curse. Study history. It just seems to be never been a time. There hasn't been wars, chaos going on somewhere, right? Due to the fall. So when we go, oh, how come this is all going on? We understand the ultimate reason. Sin, reigning, evil, chaos due to sin entering into the world. So 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you're there, say amen. Remember the warning, reminder. But realize this, that in the what? Everybody say a little loud. In the what? We are in the last days. We're in them. And in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, and on goes the list. So we understand sovereignty God. We understand that we live in a fallen world. And in the midst of all of this, we must never lose sight, here's number three, that we have a very specific, very specific calling in this world as Christians. And as Christians, we are to live the gospel, and we are to propagate the gospel, and the church is called to make disciples through the gospel. Amen? So we must never forget what we're here for. When we talk about our country, and I'm mentioning things with reference to America, our great quest is not to save America. Our great, one lousy little light amen on that one. Do we love our country? Are we thankful for our freedoms? Do I thank God and do you thank God for every veteran here and every veteran in our country? Can we say amen to that? But we understand we have a higher calling. And when we lose sight of the higher calling, we easily get focused on things that may be important but are secondary to what we're here for. And what we're here for is to live the gospel, propagate the gospel, make disciples, and take as many people to heaven with us as we possibly can in the time that we're here. So let us never forget that. That's the conclusion, and I'm going to come back to it again, okay? (laughs) All right, now, next question. Why are these two ideologies so anti-American? Why why, why so anti-American? Well, I guess somebody's got to be blamed for the chaos in the world, right? Just as well be... America. Why are these two ideologies so anti-American? Well, what does Dr. Lutzer have to say about that? Both, both radical Islamists and radical secularists believe in utopia. Mark that word. Everybody say the word utopia. Both of them have a utopia mindset. That is a perfect society and world. They believe that there's their their answer is the answer to it, okay? Both radical Islamists and radical secularists believe in utopia. Muslims believe in a religious utopia, the radical left in a secular one, but both groups believe that their vision cannot be fulfilled until Christian influence and capitalism are destroyed. After that, the secularists and the Islamists will have to part ways, for they find themselves side by side as cultural warriors. As someone has well said, the radical left sees Islam as a battering ram that can help de-Christianize America as they say in battle, the enemy 
of my enemy is what? Is my friend. So, so, in the minds of both radical Islamists and radical leftists, a nation conceived in liberty and where all people are said to be created equal is really the great Satan, built on slavery and dedicated to conquest. It has been said that for centuries, America has been responsible for oppression, poverty, and injustice within its borders and around the world, and the blame continues throughout today. And don't come up to me afterwards, because I already, I already know what you're going to say. If this country is so bad, how come everybody wants to come here? Amen? But you understand the thinking here, the, the philosophy, the ideology that's behind these particular thinking, and that oppressed man, and we're being responsible, the country and those are Judean roots and so forth, is responsible for that. Now, and why are feminists silent when it comes to Islam's abhorrent treatment of women? Feminists are verbally paralyzed. On the one hand, they disagree with how women are treated in Islam, but on the other, they choose to give Islam a pass. The leftists, progressive, are silent even though homosexuals are executed in Muslim countries, The leftists do not want to be critical of a religion that is helping them destroy the foundations of Western civilization. To quote David Horowitz, on their hatred of Christianity and contempt for the Constitution, both the left and political Islam uh, agree. In the minds of the left, the common enemy is America, not radical Islam. Never mind that Islam allows men to have multiple wives and seeks global supremacy and that the laws of Saudi Arabia insist that those who convert from Islam to another religion should be executed. The left's willingness to defend a fundamentalist theocracy that believes in stoning homosexuals, religious supremacy, and the oppression of women, if not violence against them, is surprising. But a common enemy makes them join hands in the fight. The left defends radical Muslims, arguing that they have a good reason to hate us. Now, I call these ideologies. If we're discerning, we understand these are not ideologies. These are false religions. Both of them. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn with me to um, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, and turn with me to chapter chapter eleven. What do I, what do, what do I mean by that? You might say, "Well, wait a minute. How, how is how is um, secularist or socialism? Well, how how is that a religion? Well, at the heart of that is humanism." And at the heart of humanism is that man reigns supreme to be his own what? To be his own God. So when we think about this, this, these ideas of utopia are merely false religions that flesh out in, in different ways and are inspired, satanically inspired by the God of this world, if I may say it that clearly. So, both pose a false utopia, I pointed out to you. Catch that idea of that word, utopia, okay? Their idea of a perfect world and society. 
They are not the same utopias in their mind, but they are united against one utopia where justice will roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And I'm talking about a utopia that is coming with a perfect ruler, a perfect justice, and a perfect king. It is called the kingdom. And both of those utopias are a satanic false substitute for the one that God promises that you're in if you're in Christ now in the sense of the kingdom of God in, in, in you being his child and a coming utopia that has the characteristics of all these things that people desire. They just don't know where to find it, but it's found through the gospel. Can you say amen to that? And if you turn to Isaiah chapter 11, are you there? Let me read something about a utopia coming. Then a shoot will spring spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Notice, on him. Hmm. Spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the, and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what he's his eyes see nor a decision by what his ears hear but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth and he will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist Get this, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them, and the cow and the bear will graze together, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all or they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, you go ahead and just say, I'm taking that metaphorically as heaven. That's not what they understood when they heard that. And when they heard that with reference to one who is coming, who's going to reign and rule over that particular reversal of the curse on this world. That's going to take place. That's part of that true utopia that is coming. I'm getting fired up, aren't I? Amen? Turn with me to the book of Zechariah. You know everything there is to know about Zechariah because you were in pastor's class on Zechariah. Hmm, Zechariah. Happiness is sitting next to someone who can find Zechariah. Amen? And go to the end of the book, chapter 14. Just one more thing about this. Zechariah 14. All right. Verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. Verse 2, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, houses plundered. 
so forth down in verse 4. Verse 4. 3 says the Lord will go out and fight against those nations when he fights on the day of battle. Verse 4. In that day, his feet will land on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west. All these geographical changes that are going to take place with the coming, with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Down to verse 7, quickly, 7. For it will be a unique, unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light, and it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea. It will be summer as well as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. All the land will be changed, so forth. Now, verse 11. People will live in this, what he's described, and there will be no more what? Ah, what? going to be a reversal of the curse in the kingdom to come is why you have what you could read in Isaiah chapter 11. Isn't it something what God has planned and what he's going to do in the future, and more about that kingdom in the revelation and so forth. So, so, back to our focus here. There is a coming utopia. That's why I would take that time to note that, and we will observe that from the scriptures and personally, Lord willing, in the first phase of the eternal king. So the influential philosopher, Noam Kamoski, has said, Chamoski, says that whatever evil has been committed against America pales in comparison to the evils that America has committed against others. As David Horwitz writes, for 40 years, Noam Komoski, whatever his name is, has turned out book after book, pamphlet after pamphlet, speech after speech with one message and one message alone. America is the great Satan. It is the fountain of evil in, in the world. Now, where am I going next? Yeah, the deception of is a next section in uh, his book as it relates to um, as it relates to political correctness and this moves toward Lutzer's final point as 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 relating to these two particular ideologies let me quote this from myself here <laughs> deception of political correctness the cry of the leftists is the best help to the influence of radical Islam. If you criticize or if you examine the goal and objectives of radical Islam, what does that make you? It makes you an intolerant, this is political correctness today, it makes you an intolerant, bigot, raceless, racist, Islamophobe. And that's one of our new terms that we have today, correct? So any criticism about these things, Islamophobia is a word invented by a Muslim to shame anyone who is critical of Islam. Even if the criticism is factually accurate, the same political correctness used to weaken, if not destroy, capitalism is the same political correctness that allows Islam to flourish, Our culture is trading wisdom for mindless acceptance and courage for cowardice. 
quite a quote, quite a statement, is it not? Okay, a brief word now because we've covered the reality of, of Islam here, and I want to just a brief word with reference to, to Islam. Before we do that, let us remember the first major point of the Muslim Brotherhood plan is to destroy America, to expand Muslim presence by birth rate, immigration, and a refuge and a, and a refusal to assimilate. This strategy transformed Indonesia from a Buddhist and Hindu country to the largest Muslim-dominated country in the world. Stop for a moment. I read this uh, recently, um, how in uh, France in 1974, there was one um, Islamic shrine. Uh, Islamic, yeah, is that the word shrine? Church, shrine? Mosque, thank you. Today there are nearly 2,000. Nearly 2,000. So this is a strategy. Transform Indonesia, so forth. As Europe has discovered, by way of example of France, open borders for refugees may be viewed as a compassionate response to a catastrophic humanitarian crisis, but it has long-term risk and consequences. The radical hope of Islamists is that through Muslim immigration and population growth in the West, Sharia law will eventually replace United States law. That is the goal. Now, brief word about Islam. First, Islam has a different God. A different God. And the God to which Islam claims, you know, oftentimes people say, well, we all have the same God with just different forms of how we worship or understand him. The God of Islam, based upon the Quran, is not a triune God, and he is an angry God, okay? Not a triune God. The Bible says, Jehovah, I am the Lord, Jehovah. That's the name he gives to himself. And there, read it with me, and there, beside me, there is no what? God. Now, the God... God, Genesis 1, in the beginning what? Everybody say, in the beginning what? God, creator God. I'm the one, Jehovah saying, I'm that one, and there is no other. So we got a conflict there, don't we? Different Jesus. In Islam, oh, I wonder if I can go back. Yes, I did it. In Islam, Jesus is recognized as a prophet and a messenger of Islam's God, but not God in flesh. Colossians 1, the in him, look back at the previous verse. For sake of time, we'll go back there, but look at the previous verse, talking about Jesus. So we could say in Jesus, in him, all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, both visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him, And for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We have a Jesus that is both man, fully man. He became man, fully man, and fully God. Can you say amen to that? You got a different Jesus. You got a different Jesus, you got a different gospel. Then you have a different gospel. You have a different divine book, that is, with reference to the Quran. The Quran, the idea was that through the angel Gabriel, was given to Muhammad, and Muhammad's writings were accumulated over years, and about 600 years after Christ, those writings then were comprised into what is called the Quran. We have a different book 
that relates, and particularly a New Testament that relates to the eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ, of men who wrote those Gospels, and the Apostle Paul, likewise, an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ, whose writings primarily come to us, New Testament I'm talking now, between 20 years after Christ up to about 60 years. That is a whole lot different than 600 years after Christ and the accumulation of another book that is their particular uh, divine book. I'm just giving facts. Brief word about Islam. Another one. Uh, here, I just want to say this about the Scriptures. And that is the, the way that we receive the Scriptures, the Bible tells us. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. By the way, when you read that and you get interpretation, you're thinking, yeah, that's not this person or that person, or the Pope or whatever else. No, the idea is origin. It's not of one's own origin. That's the idea of that word or source. Then he explains why, how. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of, ah, but men moved by the Spirit, spoke from God, and gave us his word, the Bible, written by these men who were guided, born along by the Spirit of God. But most of all, everybody say most of all. Islam has a different salvation. And you just take, just take this this morning in your thinking and remember it. And burn Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and other verses like that into your brain. And always remember what is unique to the Christian faith is salvation is not about works. It is about the grace of God. Or as R.C. says, yes, it is by works, but not ours, but Christ. Amen? Unique to Christianity. And in, uh, in Islam... You have uh, the responsibility of what is called the uh, five pillars of Islam that are required, other religious duties, and obedience to what is called jihad that is interpreted different ways by Islamists, by Islamist uh, so-called scholars. But in Christianity, we offer a salvation based upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. It is Jesus Christ. I love the way it's stated at that first council. Pastor's going to get to that chapter in three or four years, Acts chapter 15. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as those also. What are you talking about? Previous record of those in the book of Acts, by grace through faith, by grace through faith, say it, for by grace have you been saved through, and it's not of, not of yourselves, it is a, lest any man should what, boast or brag, by grace through, through faith, all right, oh, we've got time, good, the response of the church, what is our response? Let's go back to the Bible. About the greatest command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, with all your mind. Now finish it with me. And there are only two kinds of people in this world. Cheeseheads and the rest of you. 
Amen? Mm -hmm. Thanks, Aaron Rodgers, for sticking around another year. I still have hope. Beloved, lost people of whatever religion are not the enemy. They are captive to the enemy. And we are to love our neighbors. One reason we love our neighbors is show the difference that Christ has made in our life, that we love people, we care about people, and we serve people, that God might give us an opportunity to tell people about what God has done in our life through his Son. So remember that. Lost people are not the enemy, but captive to the enemy. And we were there once ourselves, were we not? Secondly, our response. And he, this is the last quote, say amen, last quote, amen? Thank you, quoted me to death. Uh, We must not see Muslims as our enemies, but rather as people who have been misled by a religion that keeps them in spiritual and cultural bondage. Next thing that we need to remember is Jesus' words. Do not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. God, in that sovereignty, is bringing the mission field right here to us. I have a dear pastor friend, and on their missions budget of their church. They support a gentleman who is from a uh, dominant uh, Islamic country, and that is his background, and in the mercy and grace of God, he was saved, and he had at some point come to the States, I believe, to study and so forth, but now he goes back to that country on a regular basis and when he leaves to the few churches that very quietly support him um, he tells them goodbye and it may be the last time because if he is found out for his propagation of the gospel and his involvement with churches where he would return home he could be in various serious trouble in a Islamically uh, ruled uh, culture or, or country. Now, this man has a, the gospel right, his theology right, and don't you admire a person like that? Amen? But now, wait a minute. Think about it. God has brought that, that part of the world right to us, all around us. So we admire that, but what about our part in here in the opportunities that we have with people that God has brought right to us uh, right here. Oh, wrong way. And my biggest question to us this morning as people who would claim the Lord Jesus Christ is do we believe this verse? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Jew first, and also to the Greek. Do I really believe that? Do I really believe that? Do I really believe that in the power of the gospel, no one is too steeped in any form of spiritual darkness 
that is beyond the power of the gospel. Do I believe that? Who knows how God may be preparing someone just for you to tell them the saving good news of forgiveness and eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I'm going to pray, and, and, but I'm not done. So don't you dare get up. Okay? I'm going to pray, though. Let me pray right now. Father, thank you for the power of the gospel. Thank you for this chapter. Thank you for Dr. Lutzer. Thank you for ever awakening us to our responsibility. Thank you for being in control, working all things to the counsel of your perfect will. Thank you for the power that you display in the cross of Christ and in the resurrection. Oh, we're fired up about Easter Sunday, but we realize we gather every Sunday and we celebrate the wonder that our Lord Jesus Christ is alive and well. And for that, we praise you. Now, may we be ever mindful that in the midst of all the chaos going on in this world, we have a message. We have a great message to present to others, a great message to live, but to present that gives hope to those who are created in the image and likeness of God and will spend eternity somewhere. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.